Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, before we begin our worship in the teaching of God's Word, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that when we sin, we are grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. When we do that, his ongoing sanctifying ministry, that ministry which produces spiritual growth and enlightenment in our lives, is shut down, it's squelched because of sin in our lives. So God has provided a grace solution, which is that if we confess, which simply means to admit or acknowledge in the privacy of our own souls to God the Father, that which we have done, the sin that we've committed, that we remember, he is faithful and just to forgive us that sin, and to cleanse us from all other unrighteousness and sin. At that instant, we are cleansed, forgiven, we recover the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we can advance in our spiritual growth. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Let's bow our heads together. After a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as human beings, we are part of a cosmic conflict that began before you created the first man. It began with the fall of Adam. Yet our involvement is not optional. It is inherent in our position as your creatures on this planet. Your word defines this conflict, describes it, how it began and how it will end. And as human beings, we are at center stage during this age in this conflict. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're specifically a target of Satan in this conflict, and your word defines and describes just what our roles, responsibilities are, and how you protect us and watch over us. The key is for us to know our weapons, and our weapons are defined in the word of God. So now as we take time to uh, study the word, to let God the Holy Spirit teach us, instruct us about these things, we pray that we might be able to focus, to concentrate, that as the Holy Spirit teaches us, we will put together the doctrines we have already learned with that which we learned today, and we may gain fresh insight into our particular role in this cosmic conflict. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All of human history is part of a huge conflict that we've been studying the past few weeks. We call it the angelic conflict. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote a well-known book several decades ago called The Invisible War. Arno Gabeline wrote a book called The Conflict of the Ages. All of these are simply titles and expressions for the same thing. That is a revolt that occurred against God in eternity past, led by a creature originally uh, named Lucifer or Halel ben Shahar in the Hebrew, the light bearer, the son of the dawn, later to take the, have the name Satan or the adversary. And all of human history fits within this framework of this conflict, this rebellion that was initiated by Lucifer in eternity past and will come to a definite conclusion at some time in the future. If you understand this conflict, it will help you understand what human life is all about, help you answer those questions we ask about, uh, is there really purpose and meaning in life as a whole? Is there purpose and meaning to my life as an individual? After all, why am I here? What should I be involved in. If there is a God, then is he just a somewhat chaotic God who is temperamental? And is he involved? Is he uninvolved? All of these questions are questions that we must answer. But what the Bible tells us is that God is a personal God. God is a God of planning. God is a God of purpose. And that human history has meaning and purpose. It is not accidental. It is not something that just suddenly uh, evolved as a result of just uh, random events coming together, random processes coming together. And at the very core of this, we learn that the most important issue in our life, whoever you are, wherever you are, the most important issue within this conflict that defines the existence of the human race is your spiritual life. Now, what do I mean by spiritual life? I don't mean your happiness or well-being. That's how many people use the word spirituality today. I'm going to take a little time off and focus on my, my spiritual life or on spirituality. Another way in which people use the word is to uh, refer to their emotional well-being or self-realization or self-fulfillment. We live in an era today when spirituality is defined on the street in psychological terms of wholeness and well-being and mental uh, stability, some kind of happiness. But that's not what the Bible means by spirituality. The Bible defines spirituality in terms of your relationship with the eternal God of the universe, the creator God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. The Bible teaches us that we're all born spiritually dead. If you do not have a uh, belief or trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't have a spiritual life, the Bible says. You were born dead in your trespasses and sins, separated from God, 
unable to understand the things of God, unable to have a relationship with God, because God is a perfect God. He has absolute righteousness, and we are fallen sinners, the Bible says, and can't have a relationship with God. And so, therefore, something must happen to solve this incredible problem. The solution to that problem occurred when Jesus Christ died on the cross. It wasn't just a tragic death. It was a death that was intended and planned from eternity past by God the Father in order to solve the sin problem so that human beings who were created in his image and likeness could have a relationship with him and could have their spiritual life restored. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, your spiritual life and your involvement in this cosmic conflict isn't an option. It's a reality. You may wish you weren't there. You may say, well, don't distract me with these things. I've got more problems with my finances and going to school. I have more issues at work and problems there. Uh, This just seems like a rather abstract thing. I don't really have time to focus on uh, spiritual, my spiritual life and spiritual growth and a lot of Bible study right now. Well, that's the issue, is at the very core of your life and my life is that relationship with God, and everything else flows out of that particular relationship. As a result, the development of your spiritual life is the most important thing in your life. And as we study the scripture, what you realize is the development of your spiritual life doesn't have anything to do with your emotions or your happiness or your psychological well-being. It has to do with learning how to think like God thinks. You must learn to think not as your family thinks, not as your peers think, not as your teachers have taught you, not as the culture at large thinks, Your job is not to think like your heroes think or like your favorite political pundits think, but your job is to learn how to think as Jesus Christ thinks. Because only when you face the events of life or reality on the basis of reality, which is defined by how Jesus Christ thinks, can you properly understand what is going on in this cosmic conflict, in this angelic rebellion that is raging all around you, whether you're aware of it or not, or whether you want to be aware of it or not. Many people would just, don't tell me about that, let me just live my life. But we can't live our lives apart from an understanding of the angelic conflict because that defines history and defines our lives. What we have to do as believers is to assimilate into our own thinking the thinking of Jesus Christ which is revealed in only one place, and that's the Bible. So therefore, your job and my job is to learn the Bible. Whatever our vocation may be, our avocation needs to be the study, the assimilation of the Word of God into our lives. That is what is supposed to drive everything else. We are to learn the doctrines revealed in the Bible. We're to let the Holy Spirit expose the areas in our own thinking that's contrary to the Word of God. We need to let the Holy Spirit kick us out of our comfort zones of human viewpoint so that we can let divine viewpoint dominate our thinking. To put it in computer terms, our operating system has been corrupted by sin And we need to let God, the Holy Spirit, completely reformat the hard drive and 
program it with Bible doctrine and not human viewpoint. So this tells us that your primary task as a soldier in the angelic conflict, and every one of us is a soldier in the angelic conflict, whether we like it or not, is to uh, assimilate this thinking into our souls. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. There he writes, For though we walk in the flesh, that is, though we have a material life, we do not war according to the flesh. We're involved in this spiritual warfare and the principles of warfare, as Paul uh, defines in Ephesians chapter 5, 10, uh, 10 and following, not according to the principle, or 6, 10 and following, it's not according to the principles of, of uh, physical warfare. We do not war according to the flesh. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And that is talking about not based on human viewpoint. Not They don't come out of the sin nature. But they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, this term for strongholds is not a term that def- that relates to demons per se. Sometimes you'll hear people in terms of what I call neo-spiritual warfare or the charismatic perversion that you'll hear if you flip around on TV and watch Trinity Broadcasting Network or any of these other channels dominated by charismatic theology. They won't interpret strongholds as demonic. For them, everything is a battle against demons. What they've done is they've taken this concept of spiritual warfare and perverted it from a mental battle about doctrine and the dominance of doctrine between your ears, and they've transferred it to some kind of personal, ongoing, pugilistic contest with Satan or a demon. But that's not a biblical concept. That's a pagan concept. Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 10 says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And that term for strongholds refers to that deeply embedded comfort zone of human viewpoint and sin habits that dominate your life and mine. They have embedded themselves into our thinking and into our behavior, and the only thing that solves the problem is for God the Holy Spirit to take the scalpel of the two-edged sword of God and surgically remove that. And sometimes he doesn't use anesthesia when he does it. Verse 5, Paul goes on to say that we're casting down arguments. See, that tells us that this battle is a battle related to the intellect and thought. It is not a physical battle. It's not an emotional battle. But we are to deal with the arguments, the rationalizations, the positions, the intellectual positions that are set up to oppose God. In other words, it's dealing with the thinking of the world versus the thinking of Christ. The spiritual life is about thought. Again and again and again, the Scriptures emphasize that. And by thought, I don't mean the absence of mental attitude sins. It goes much more uh, deep than that, much deeper than that. It's not about uh, the absence of jealousy or envy or arrogance. Of course, that's part of it. But it has to do with the very thought basis for your life, how you think about everything in life. The Bible addresses every area of life. If God, just think about this. If God is the creator God of everything in the universe, 
then everything in the universe that you can think of has its origin in the thinking of God billions and billions of years ago. And that involves everything from logic, which is inherent in the nature of God. Remember, he is identified when John talks about the Lord Jesus Christ and boils everything down to one word. He uses the word logos. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And word communication is inherently logical. That's why we get our word logic from the Greek word logos. And so everything boils down to that thinking that is in God. So if you want to talk about logic, if you want to talk about philosophy, if you want to talk about any area of human intellection, from the sciences to liberal arts, drama, music, literature, theater, any discipline of life has its origin in God. This is one reason why studying the Bible is so fabulous, because you can't avoid learning about everything in God's creation uh, when you study the Bible. It's the starting point, and it takes you everywhere in life, because we have to overhaul all of our thinking in all of these areas, everything from finances and economics to politics and uh, social institutions, everything is addressed by the Creator God who is the origin of everything. So we have to learn to think about these things biblically and not in terms of human viewpoint or the way Satan thinks. Uh, James chapter 3 says that the thinking of, uh, of the world is natural and demonic. So that if you don't think biblically, you're thinking like a demon. That just puts it in its most uh, stark contrast, the harshest way of expressing it. When you're thinking in terms of human viewpoint, you're thinking just like Satan wants you to think. And so your job as a believer is to get rid of that kind of thinking. So Second Corinthians 10.5, Paul says, Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. There's your conflict. Are you more concerned about learning about God and learning to think about everything the Creator God created as He thinks about it, or are you more concerned with just feeding your own personal pleasure and the details of your own life? We're to bring every thought into captivity for Jesus Christ. That Again, that's not talking about the absence of mental attitude sins. That's talking about every area of intellectual activity you can think of needs to be rethought in terms of a divine viewpoint framework. So this is the great challenge that we have and a great personal challenge that we have as believers, this means you can't get there by just showing up at Bible class once a week. You have been indoctrinated by the world system and your own sin nature for 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and the Word of God has to re-educate you, and you have to have truth drilled into your soul, and you have to be reminded of it again and again and again. Even if you've been a believer for decades, even if you have been a growing believer for decades, even if this seems like old hat to you, you need to be reminded of it again and again and again because the natural bent of our sin nature is to just let it slide, to think that, oh, I've heard this before, I've gone through this before, I've studied all this before, I can just sort of coast. Well, you can't coast in the spiritual life. And when you coast, you slip into neutral, it's an uphill battle, and you just start sliding backwards. And next thing you know, you have 
reach the uh, pit of depravity again. So we're in this study on angelic conflict because it is not just some sort of abstract uh, idealistic doctrine out there, but because it impacts the very way you think about your life. Because you as an individual are part of a broader plan of history, and to understand your life and your spiritual life and why it's a priority and why it is so crucial, you have to locate that within the context of God's plan for history. And the only way to fully understand that is to understand it within the framework of the angelic conflict. So that when you study the angelic conflict, you're basically studying a biblical philosophy of history, learning how God looks at history, and we see this from Genesis to Revelation. So let's review just a little bit what we've studied so far as we've looked into the angelic conflict. First of all, in eternity past... God determined to create a kingdom comprised of subjects who were would freely worship him and honor him. These subjects would be rational and volitional creatures. By rational, I mean that they could think, they had logic, they could communicate. Uh, all of this is wrapped up in the idea that they were rational beings. Second, they were volitional That means they were responsible for their own actions, for their own decisions, and they would choose whether or not they would obey God. They would choose whether or not they would worship God, and they had the freedom to not worship God. And so this was at the very core of his desire in creating these creatures. Now, the first creatures that God created were rational beings, but they were immaterial beings. And we've studied all this in the past five or six weeks. They were called angels. The term angel has to do with a basic function that many angels had, which was to serve as messengers or servants of God. These creatures called angels, as we've seen, were immaterial. Uh, Hebrews 1.14, they're described as ministering servants, uh, ministering spirits, rather. They are immaterial. They are not uh, materially based. They were clearly uh, rational creatures. Matthew 28, 5 gives us an indication of this when the angel that appeared at the tomb of the risen uh, Lord Jesus Christ said to the women who came out that uh, resurrection morning, do not be afraid, for I, I know. That indicates he's rational. I know something. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Uh, First Peter tells us something else about the angels, that they uh, analyze human history. They observe it. They watch it. They study it. All of this involves the use of the intellect. They specifically are interested in the operation of the gospel and the impact that it has in your life, in your spiritual life. These are things, Peter says, which angels desire to look into. This indicates that they are thoughtful, they're thinking uh, beings. Angels have the ability to communicate. Genesis 19, 1 and 2 is a passage that we have uh, looked at in the past when the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, along with uh, two angels, came to visit uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. And then two of the angels leave and go on to Sodom, And when they come to Sodom, they engage in a conversation with Lot in Genesis chapter 19, 
verses 1 and 2. This indicates that they are rational beings. They're also incredibly powerful beings. In 2 Peter uh, 2.11, we read, whereas angels who are greater in power and might. Two words in the Greek that indicate incredible strength and power. They're much more powerful than human beings are. But among the angels, they have ranks. These angels are not in a uh, communist, Marxist society where they all are equal. They are ranked in authority. You have references to angels who have territorial responsibilities in human history. Uh, demons do as well. We have a reference to the prince of the kingdom of Persia here who is a demon in reference to a struggle with Michael, who's called one of the chief princes among the angels. Uh, also in Ephesians 1.21, we have them described in terms such as uh, principalities and powers and might and dominion. Each of these terms reference different categories of angels. We see the same thing in Colossians 1.16, where they're classified as thrones or dominions or principalities, or powers. These are all terms used to designate different rankings of angels. We've seen that there are millions and millions of angels in various passages. For example, Revelation 5.11, they're described as 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands upon thousands. So there are literally millions, if not hundreds of millions, of angels. The angels also have the ability to worship God. In Job 38, uh, verses 4 through 7, we learn that at the time that God created the earth, the morning stars, that's all of the angels united in Job 38, 7, sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So they express emotion. They are, were joyful over the creation of the earth. Now, we learned that before, in eternity past, God wanted to create a kingdom of creatures who would worship him. And he created them as rational and volitional so that they weren't robots. They weren't pre-programmed to worship him. His desire was a free love and not a coerced love. He created the angels, first of all, and the highest of all the angels that he created was called the anointed cherub who covered. We studied that last time in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 19. Two passages that focus on the fall of Satan are Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28, 12 to 19. We've spent much of the last three or four weeks just analyzing those passages related to the fall of Satan. His uh, mental attitude sin of arrogance expressed in the five I wills of Isaiah chapter 14 culminating in the statement I will be like the most high the ex desire of that creature was to replace the creator with himself a creature and to gather to himself all of the honor and glory that should go to the creator alone he wanted to rule the universe. He wanted to be the ultimate authority in the universe over all of the angels. And in an analysis, which we'll get to before we're done this morning, in an analysis of what happens in 
Lucifer's thinking in uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, we discovered that several key elements that are brought out in terms of the Christian life within the angelic conflict. For example, the thinking of the believer toward God and toward others is defined in terms of humility and orientation to authority. That is at the very core of Satan's sin is his lack of humility and his rejection or rebellion against divine authority. So authority and your response to authority says a lot about your own spiritual life. The other thing that we learn from this, since the core sin is a sin of thought, a mental attitude sin, that our mental attitude, our thinking, takes center stage, not our emotions, not our feelings, but our thinking. Now, Satan's goal, according to Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, was to usurp God as God, to supplant the Creator, to become the king of the universe himself. God had created a kingdom that was populated by uh, immaterial, rational beings, and now Satan wanted to overthrow the true king of the universe and establish his own kingdom. This is why he receives a new title, uh, that of Satan. In the Hebrew, Satan means adversary. He is the adversary of God. And in that rebellion, he enticed a third of the angels to follow him. And so there is this huge conflict that takes place, and the rest of the angels remained loyal and obedient to God. The angels that followed Satan are called fallen angels, and in some cases they're identified as demons. They are all evil spirits. The angels who remained uh, loyal to God are called elect or holy angels. Furthermore, to reinforce the whole military imagery, the whole warfare imagery of this conflict, the angels who maintain their allegiance to God are frequently referred to in the Old Testament by the term Sabaoth, which is a term for armies. It's a term to describe soldiers. It's a term that's even used today to describe the IDF, the Israel Defense Force, in the Hebrew uses the word Sabaoth uh, for the uh, army of Israel. So this indicates that we're in this massive uh, military uh, conflict. Now, Satan challenged God with regard to the justice, the integrity of this decision. How in the world can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? It just seems so out of character. I mean, a, a, a punishment should fit the crime. And this crime wasn't so bad that why would it entail putting your creatures into a horrible death such as a lake of fire for eternity, not just a thousand years or ten thousand years, but for eternity? Why is this so horrible? And so Satan challenges the justice of God. He challenges the wisdom of God. And God, in his grace, decides to establish a little test case to demonstrate to the angels why a punishment such as eternity in the lake of fire is not out of character and it's not a violation of his own righteousness. 
And so what God does is he decides to create another creature, a man, human beings. He creates first Adam and then the woman, and he places them in perfect environment that's untainted by sin in order to give them an opportunity to choose whether or not to follow God. And so the test in the Garden of Eden had to do with whether or not they would obey God in relation to one tree, everything else they could eat from, but from the, tr- the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, they could not eat. And it wasn't because it was poisonous, and it wasn't because this was really a metaphor for sexual activity or any of the other silly things that people say. It was just a test whether or not they were going to do what God said to do or not. And eventually the woman is deceived by Lucifer, who takes the form of a serpent, and deceives her. And then she entices her husband, and he sins, and the human race falls into sin. And so we begin to learn of all the horrors that enter into human history because of the simple act of eating a piece of fruit. See, most people think of horrible sins and horrible consequences. They never think of something as simple and innocuous as eating a piece of fruit. But what God is showing to the angels and to us is that the most innocuous act, if it's done in violation of God's authority if it's done in rebellion against the creator of the universe, has not only spiritual but physical ramifications that completely rip apart the fabric of the universe. And the curse that is outlined in Genesis chapter 3 begins with how the animals are changed biologically as a result of sin entering into the universe, how the uh, reproductive system of the woman is changed physically because of the entrance of sin into the universe, how the ground itself changes and the plants in, that God has created are going to now uh, be changed because of sin, and the ground is going to bring, bring forth thorns and thistles, and labor will now become laborious and toilsome for man, and he will live by the spread of by the sweat of his brow. So we learn from us from Genesis chapter 3 of the horrible consequences of disobedience to God. Now we learn in studying the first three chapters of Genesis that Satan personally tempted uh, man in the Garden of Eden by taking on the guise of this serpent. This leads man to give up his position his original created position as the king of the earth. Man's created to rule the earth. He is God's vicegerent. He is created to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. He's the king of the earth. But when Adam disobeys God, he virtually abdicates his royal position and Satan becomes the great usurper. Satan becomes the new ruler of planet Earth, and man becomes a slave to the tyranny of Satan. Now, most of you probably don't realize how much you are a slave to Satan. So I want to emphasize this just a little bit. First of all, let's look at the titles that Satan is given in the Scripture. John 12:31, Jesus says that he is the ruler of this world, that, and he uses the word cosmos. The ruler of this world, cosmos, in John's thinking, the cosmos is the same 
entity that God loved in such a way that he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for. Jesus was sent to die for the world, for the cosmos that is ruled now by Satan. You didn't know it, but when you were born, you were born a subject in the domain of Satan. You were born uh, as a totally depraved creature under the condemnation of death. Other passages that use this term ruler of the world ruler of this world are John fourteen thirty and John sixteen uh thirty one. Second Corinthians four four we have a additional insight into the authority of Satan. He is called the God of this age, and the term age or ion there focuses on that time frame that there is a temporal period from the uh, fall of Adam until the destruction of the Antichrist when Satan is functions as the god of this age and he has the ability to blind you to the truth. He has the ability and he has blinded mankind to uh, a knowledge of the truth. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, we're also told that he is the prince of the power of the air. The word for prince is the same word used earlier in describing him as the ruler of this world. So he has an authority over the entire earth. Now, in terms of understanding this, we must understand that that man is truly in a satanic kingdom when he is born. And you have various passages that indicate the nature of that kingdom. First of all, it's a, it's a position of slavery. Romans 6, 6 says that we were born slaves to sin. Now, you didn't realize you were a slave to sin. You thought you were pretty good before you got saved. But the Bible says that you were a slave to sin. Why is that? Well, you couldn't do anything else. You had a sin nature. You, didn't, you weren't regenerate. You didn't have the Holy Spirit, so you, no matter what you wanted to do, no matter how good it was, no matter how nice it was, no matter how kind it was, it came out of your sin nature. It was either sin or human good, but it was garbage because you were a slave to the sin nature. You had no option until you were saved. Romans 6, 17, Paul talks about this. He says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves to sin... Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Once you trust in Christ as your Savior, you are freed from the tyranny of the sin nature. And furthermore, you are transferred out of Satan's domain. You still live in the world, but you are not of the world. Let's just look at Acts 26.18 on the screen, talking about his ministry to the Gentiles. Paul says it was to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. These are terms, metaphors that are often used to describe uh, God's kingdom of light versus Satan's kingdom or domain of darkness. So his ministry, the ministry of a pastor, the ministry of an evangelist in giving the gospel is that people's eyes will be open to the truth, that they will turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God. See, if you grow up in the kind of mythological Christianity that most people in our culture think of, to be in the power of Satan automatically conjures images like you'd see in the movie The Exorcist. But that's exactly the kind of distortion Satan wants you to think of. 
you know, the sweetest, kindest, most uh, wonderful little old lady, Mother Teresa, is just in the power of Satan. I've read some of the things that she has written. She doubted God. She believed that all these wonderful, sincere Hindus were all going to go to heaven. There's no indication that Mother Teresa ever had a clue as to what the mission, the purpose of Jesus Christ was or what the gospel was all about. In fact, she wasn't even sure that that God even existed. She was just into a lot of good works, and that's the essence of Satan's system. So you have all these wonderful people, but they're in the power of Satan. And the word that's used there in the Greek is exousia, which means authority, domain, dominion. You are born in the kingdom and as a subject of Satan. And from the very beginning, because he has his own little... Uh, internal uh, spy operating inside your body called your sin nature, you have been at, you were at his beck and call until you heard the gospel. In Colossians 1.13, Paul refers to the process of salvation as being delivered from the power of darkness and being transferred or conveyed into the kingdom of of the Son of His love. In other words, what happens at salvation is there is a spiritual transaction that occurs and your citizenship in the kingdom of Satan is canceled, your passport is shredded, and you are given a new citizenship and a new passport in the kingdom of God and a whole new identity, and you are adopted into the royal family of God. Now, a lot of people just have trouble with that, and they just can't get past the fact that they know so many nice and wonderful people. Well, in the early, in the early church and during the time of Christ, there were a lot of wonderful moral people in Israel as well, in Judea. They were called Pharisees. And Jesus, Jesus never read how to uh, win friends and influence people, told the disciples that they were of their father, the devil. See, modern liberal theology wants us to think that God is everybody's father. But that's not true. You are all all born not only in the kingdom of Satan, but he is your papa. He's your father. And everybody wants to do that. In John 8, 44, Jesus adds a few other insights into the character of Satan, that he's a murderer from, from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth For there is no truth in him. At the very core of his character, he is a liar and a deceiver who wants to redefine reality. Now, that's a really important concept to understand. Because when you are born in the kingdom of Satan, you are born in a psycho kingdom a psychotic kingdom, totally divorced from reality, living as if God doesn't exist and the reality defined in Scripture is not reality. You are born psychotic, totally divorced from reality. Only when you come to understand that God exists and that He sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins do you get the first glimpse of genuine reality. Because reality is what God created, and God is the one who defines reality. But Satan came along and thought he could redefine reality, restructure reality, that he could be uh, the one who operates as God. So we're born in Satan's domain. 
We're born under condemnation. We're blinded to the truth, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and we operate on a worldview of a lie, which is what we see in John 8.44. We're of our father, the devil. He's a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth. And so we have a worldview that begins to shape in our thinking as we begin to observe things and listen to our parents and respond to all the situations around us, that little sin nature in us begins to just automatically shape and interpret and reinterpret all the things around us in terms of a false view of life. It organizes all the data according to a false standard. Now, some people say, well, that there's a lot of people who have certain elements of truth. Sure. For anything to work, it has to have 95, 96, 98% truth. It's, it's that it's repackaged. It's the proportions are off. Uh, sometimes I've used the illustration of a recipe. I like to cook. I like to bake. I like to bake too much. But if you take all the same ingredients that you have in a cake recipe, flour, sugar, salt, water, eggs, and you get the proportions wrong, you have all the right ingredients. It's not going to taste very good if you put in two cups of salt instead of two cups of sugar. And if you uh, put in only one egg instead of three eggs or uh, less water or no vanilla, whatever it is, if you have all the same ingredients but you change the proportion, it's just as bad as if it's completely made from completely wrong ingredients. And this is what Satan does. He distorts the elements uh, to create his own system. So there's a lot of things that you can point in any religious system, any uh, good philosophical system that are true and have some value. It's how the whole system is put together. It's the proportions. It's the ratios. It's, it's the ultimate origin of the system and, and its authority. So Satan's primary mode of operation is to define truth as error and error is truth. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 14 and 15, where Paul tells us that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He's not that uh, red-skinned, uh, pitchfork-carrying, uh, animated character that people think of. He, he's not even something evil and wicked. He doesn't ooze evil like Al Pacino did in, uh, in that particular... What was the name of that movie? What? Devil's Advocate. Great movie. Did a fabulous job portraying the Satan. Just watch what he does with his tongue. Very serpentine throughout the whole movie. Just fabulous characterization. But see, when if you came face to face with Satan, probably the last thing you would think of was that this was Satan. He, you wouldn't think of him as evil. He has. He is the master counterfeiter and makes himself appear as an angel of light. And his angels, called ministers here, transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. They promote good. Satan really doesn't want you to think of him like the character in The Exorcist. He wants you to think of him as the source of all beauty and light and everything that is wonderful. Now, God's goal, then, is to recover that which has been lost. Oh, one more point. 
One more point, and that is that we share Satan's destiny. Matthew twenty-five forty-one, he is set to go to the lake of fire, which has already been created. So let me put one chart up here to try to give you a time frame here. In eternity past, we have the existence of God. That's not a Q. That was supposed to have been a theta. That's the Greek font shifted. So think of that as a theta for theos. That is God. The triangle represents the Trinity. God existed in eternity past, and then he created the angels. Then he created the heavens and the earth, the original heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Then there is the fall of Satan, and there is this uh, gap of judgment there, after which we see that the earth has been judged in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It is without form and void, and darkness is on the face of the deep. And then man is created. The earth is restored. Man is created. Then man falls. The lake of fire has already been created. But Satan's assignment to the lake of fire, the execution of that judgment, is postponed. We go through history, and the centerpiece of history is going to be what takes place at Calvary's cross when Jesus Christ is crucified. That is when the Satan is defeated, even though the actual judgment of Satan does not occur until the end of history. We are now living in the church age. The church age is a period where the angelic conflict has intensified because Satan knows that, that, that his number is up and that he has to do everything he can to try to prevent God from fulfilling his plan for history. The rapture will end the present church age. Then there will be a seven-year period of tribulation, part of which is known as the wrath of Satan. He will personally indwell the Antichrist and try to set up his kingdom on the earth, but the Lord Jesus Christ will return at the second coming and will defeat him, at which time he will be cast uh, into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He's released at the end of the millennial kingdom. There's a final revolt, and then he's destroyed and sent to the lake of fire. Now, as we study all of this, one of the things that uh, impacts us, it's important for us to understand, is that the contrast between Satan and Jesus Christ. Because in that study, in that analysis, you see that the core issue in the angelic conflict is related to character. It's related to what you do with your spiritual life. It's not related to simply a knowledge of Scripture, but it is related to a demonstration that living life in dependence upon God in relation to his virtues is the only life where there is meaning and purpose and happiness. And so we can contrast what is displayed by Satan in his character in the passages we've looked at uh, in contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just start, first of all, Everything flows from arrogance for Satan. He is arrogant. He is oriented to what is best for himself, and he is totally self-absorbed. In contrast, Jesus Christ exhibits perfect humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Satan is focused on himself. He is self-centered. His total mental attitude is expressed in the five I wills in 
Isaiah chapter 14, 12 through 14, in contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, Thy will be done. He is totally oriented to God's authority and God's will. Hebrews 10, 7, he says, I came to do thy will, O God. This is expressed also in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, O Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, thy will be done. Satan is concerned with his own glory. He wants to glorify himself, and yet the Jesus Christ was more concerned with the glory of the Father. Matthew 5.16, John uh, 17.4, John 14.13, John 12.28. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus instructed the disciples, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In John 17, 4, Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth in his prayer to the Father. I have finished the work which you have given to me. As a result of his glorifying the Father, the Father then glorifies the Son. His goal isn't self-glorification. It's the glory of the Father. The result is that he is glorified. Uh, the Satan is anti-authority. He is disobedient to authority in his orientation, but we see that Jesus Christ is completely obedient to the Father. This is the essence of humility. Humility isn't being uh, walked over, isn't giving in to everybody else, isn't turning yourself into some sort of dish rag. It is being properly oriented to authority and obedient to God. Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself to the point of obedience, the death on a cross. Satan in his operation and use of authority is tyrannical, whereas Jesus was a servant. Jesus said, I came to, to serve, not to be served. His leadership is not tyrannical. It is non-coercive, Matthew 11, uh, 29 to 30, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, Satan is also self-serving in his ethic. He has a value system. It is totally oriented to what is best for him. He is the center of his universe. But Jesus Christ has an internal ethic that is absolute righteousness. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 we read, especially in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with righteousness and justice. That is the essence of his character. Satan operates on the principle of works. Go out and earn it yourself. Do it yourself. The Lord Jesus Christ operates on the principle of grace. John 1.16 and of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Satan distorts reality. He wants to redefine reality. He wants to make himself equal to the Creator. But Jesus Christ defines reality. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. He is the one who defines reality. In John 8.32 he says, you shall know the truth. 
You shall be conformed to reality, as it were, and the truth shall make you free. Uh, Satan is overreaching. He was grasping for deity. Jesus Christ, who is eternal deity, did not think it's something to be grasped for. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God. Satan is destructive, whereas the Lord Jesus Christ is, is the creator, Colossians 1.16, the Redeemer, and He is the healer and restorer of destroyed creation, Romans 8, 20-23. Satan is hateful. He is the father of hate, and yet Jesus Christ is true love. John 13, 1, He says, He loved, having loved His own, He loved them to the end. John 13, 34, and 35, He said, Love one another as I have loved you. He is the preeminent example of love. Satan is hostile to the truth and hostile to God's word. And Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God's word. Scripture says, In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory uh, full of grace and truth. Well, in light of all of that, in light of the angelic conflict, then what's the issue for you? What's the issue for us? The first issue is to determine your relationship to the kingdoms. Are you part of God's kingdom? Are you part of Satan's kingdom? You were born in Satan's kingdom. You were destined for death. You were in the kingdom of darkness. There is no truth. There is no light. There is no real happiness. It's all just a sham. But you need to make a decision. Do you want to be or remain in the kingdom of darkness or do you want to be transferred into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son? It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of ritual. It's just a matter of realizing, understanding that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Your sins are paid for. All you have to do is trust in Him and you will have eternal life. You are born again, the Scripture says. You have new life in Christ. You're a new creature in Christ. You have a new citizenship in God's kingdom, and that can never be taken from you. Now, that's true for most everybody here. You've put your faith alone in Christ alone, and so the issue for you is not what kingdom am I in, but how am I living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? The issue is, are you walking in darkness? Are you still living like an unbeliever? Or are you walking in the light as he is in the light? That's First John, John 1, 7. What's your priority? Is your priority just getting enough to get by? Is your priority your career, your education, your friends, your social life, the details of life? Or is your priority understanding your role and responsibilities as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven to live as Jesus lived, to think as Jesus thought, and to understand the scripture. That's our priority. It doesn't happen by chance. It doesn't happen by osmosis. There's a lot of people who go to a local church and they pick the local church because I know that what the pastor says is true. He's got what I think is a right theology. He has right doctrine. And I'm just glad I'm associated with him. Maybe some of it will rub off. 
I don't want to be associated with those liberals or the people who go down to that shallow church down there on uh, uh, the Southwest Freeway and you just go to get motivated all the time. I want to go someplace where they're teaching the truth. Of course, I don't really apply it and I don't spend a lot of time in it, but at least I know I'm in the right place. So that's where a lot of people are. The issue for the believer is to really learn how to think like Christ. If you think by showing up on Sunday morning now and then that somehow you're going to get there, you're deceiving yourself. You're walking in darkness. You're acting like Satan. You're in self-deception. We have been brainwashed with human viewpoint to depths that most of us are, are, are scared to even contemplate. And what the Bible says is that we have to just completely overhaul our thinking. We have to renew our minds, renovate, overhaul the thinking in our soul. And that comes by making it a priority and becoming disciplined in the day-to-day study of God's Word, listening to a tape or a DVD just for 10, 15 minutes every morning. It may, it, it may be all the time you have listening on the, on, on the radio or listening to a tape in the car on the way to work. Maybe all the time you have. We're all busy people. People have incredible schedules. You don't have time every day to take in, sit down, and listen for an hour. But you can get 10 minutes in or you can get 15 minutes in. You can take a lunch break and read your Bible. Renew and refresh your mind. We have to always remember that we are in this battle. First Peter says in verse five, five in chapter five, verse eight, be sober. That doesn't mean don't be drunk. It means to be stable, objective in your thinking. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Whether you are an obedient Christian or not, whether you just want to kind of hide, not really be part of the conflict or not, Satan knows who you are, where you are, and by Satan, the whole demonic army, and you have a target on your backside. This is a Christian free target. You have Demons have license through the cosmic system. I'm not talking about demon possession of Christians. Through the cosmic system to put the assault on all of us. We can't escape the fact that as believers, we are dead center in the angelic conflict. Our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in doctrine. It is only when you know the word of God and learn to think as God thinks that we are truly armed as soldiers in this war to have real victory in our own lives in the angelic conflict. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to review these things this morning, to understand our own purpose, our own place within this angelic conflict, to realize all the fabulous assets and protection that you have given us, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, that we are in your kingdom. We have a finished, complete canon of Scripture. We have all that we need, and we have the Lord Jesus Christ who ever stands to defend us at your right hand. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain, that they would recognize it's not who you are, what you've done, it's who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross, that simply by trusting in him, relying exclusively upon his work on the cross, his death in your behalf, that you have eternal life. 
For the rest of us, Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge to make doctrine first, to realize we are soldiers in a vast cosmic conflict, and we can either be good soldiers or bad soldiers, but we are soldiers nonetheless. And if we are going to have victory, then we need to put our focus and our priority on your word and let God the Holy Spirit take your word and overhaul our lives. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.